theextraordinarychurch.ca podcast, where ordinary people experience extraordinary life in Jesus Christ. You are about to hear a message that will encourage you to become and experience all that Jesus Christ has for you. Are you ready? Open up your Bibles because something extraordinary is about to happen. Thank you for allowing the Lord to lead you and to speak a word of faith and hope I give God praise for that. Now, I don't want to keep you uh, standing much longer, but I really wrestled with this. Honest, if I'm just being brutally transparent, I told the Lord I didn't want to preach this. I told the Lord I didn't want to preach this today. And so I say this with all sobriety. As a matter of fact, in the four years of this young church plant, I've never spoken about this at all. This is not an easy subject, but as I was praying, the Lord shifted me into praying, in particular, his, uh, that's when I'm nervous, I'm like, Lord, help me, Jesus. Y'all see me fumbling with stuff? I'm not normally that guy. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. But I told him, his will be done, not mine. And from the moment I wrestled with that and got that done, I felt a peace. And so I feel like I'm in the Holy Ghost. So I want you to open up your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. And I'm going to preach what the Lord has given me by the help of the Holy Ghost. You ready? Okay, let's take a look at it. By the way, there are Easter invitations there. We want you to invite folks to be with us. For our Easter worship experience, whether it's for our kids or extraordinary things can happen, I grabbed a handful. I'm going to invite as many people as I can, and we want to see the house full for the glory of God. Amen. One more thing before you get that get that Bible or that Bible app up in the air. Praise God. And just we do this every Sunday. Just repeat after me. This is my Bible. It is the Word of God. I can do what it says I can do. I can be what it says I can be, and I can have what it says I can have. In Jesus' name, praise God. So let's look at this together. I'm reading out of the New King James, Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that that beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades or hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. And Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, he said to him, excuse me, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, meaning from the word, the Old Testament, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And I want to preach to you this afternoon for about 40 minutes, if you'll give me that. Make a 911 call. 
make a 911 call. Would you help me pray? Father, we love you. We honor you and we give you thanks. Your love is in this place. Your love is flowing. And right now I release faith. I release your love, oh Lord God. And I declare hope and healing and restoration and a right understanding of your love. You're calling us, God. Let us respond to it. Let us run to the Father like we declare today. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. In the spring of 2003, about 100 students gathered together in San Diego, California to listen to the horrific stories of drunk driving accidents. You all know I'm from the States, and as a matter of fact, I don't know if they do this now, but when you used to get your learning permit and you would obtain your driver's license, you had to go through driver's ed. And there was a portion of driver's ed that they would show you all of these horrific accidents, and they would sometimes even bring in speakers from mad mothers against drunk driving and they would tell you some horrible horrible things that would happen if you would drive under the influence or drive irresponsibly and a true story Juan Molina whose son was killed by a drunk driver five years prior told of how he had heard the horrible news he had been out with a friend and returned home and when he got home he said and I quote I got the phone call from hell it was a doctor in Portland, Oregon, who called to tell him that his son was in the emergency room. The father said, I was walking around my living room crying. My knees gave way and I fell to the ground, collapsing under the weight of the news. When he arrived in Portland, his son was in a coma with bandages all over his body and died a month later. Many of you all are familiar with, you might have heard of this, you might not, but Cindy Klein was on duty at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office in Colorado on April 27, 1999. It's a day that lives in infamy in the history of Colorado and specifically America. The phone call came into the Sheriff's Communication Center from Columbine High School. Black-coated gunmen, violence, shooting, some dead, the rest huddled in fear or climbing out of windows. Cindy later told her story. It had been a week, seven days since we got the phone call from hell. At 11.21 MDT, there was 30 seconds of silence on all the radio and TV stations in memory of the victims of this tragedy. She says, while I sit here and try to gather all my thoughts over this time period, I'm trying to piece together this nightmare so I can share it with everyone. I find it very difficult to realize that this happened to my communication center. I think every person, and specifically parent, especially as we dedicated children unto the Lord, can relate to this today. We received phone calls that startle us. What was a monumental experience before the call becomes minutia a split second later. What was the most important thing on our agenda suddenly dropped to the basement or the cellar. What anger we felt or hatred we might have felt all of a sudden turns to anguish. One phone call can turn your world upside down. Lisa Beamer, you may not have heard of her, and you know what's fascinating? We really are a reflection of all that we read. I read this book years ago, and I'll tell you, as I just tear stuff up, praise God. I read this book years ago. If you don't know the story of Lisa Beamer, her husband Todd was on flight 73 on that fateful day of September 11, 2001. For three days, Lisa roamed around her house numb. Others kept abreast of all the news, but not Lisa. She refused to watch television, refused to turn on the radio, or read anything in the paper. But when I talked about you'd be surprised what would uh, just stick with you. You know, the title of her book is Let's Roll, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Courage. <laughs> she heard through family members that some people had tried to make phone calls from aboard that flight that day. She wondered why Todd hadn't called. Around 9 o'clock on Friday evening, September 14th, her phone rang. It was Nick Leonard, the family liaison for United Airlines. Lisa I have some information for you. He suggested she find a quiet place and sit down. Three days before Nick called to tell Lisa that her husband had been on the flight, 
that crashed into that Pennsylvania farm field. Now he called again. The first was a phone call from hell. This was to be a phone call from heaven. He told her that the FBI had released information that Todd made a phone call from the flight or from the flight with the airphone located on the plane. He said, I don't have a recording of the phone call, but I have a written summary of it. Lisa said, read it to me, please. He said, I quote, GTE supervisor, Lisa Jefferson, had taken the call but was afraid to leave her station to record the call. So all she had was a written summary. Todd told Jennifer what was happening on the plane and that he and another man were going to jump the hijackers. Then he asked her to say the Lord's Prayer with him. And we know those final words if you're familiar with the book. Let's roll. Lisa later wrote of this event and she writes about it in this book and she says, it's a phone call from heaven. I was just visiting as I was out of town. I had a chance to uh, visit my mom and my family and soon as a matter of fact, my mom just recently celebrated her 70th birthday. Shout out my mom. It was it's a pretty big milestone, right? As a matter of fact, in the very near future, all of our family and some very close family friends, we're going to gather to celebrate this special occasion. That's her and I in D.C. We were there in D.C. Uh, that Saturday. Matter of fact, a week ago yesterday. She doesn't look 70, praise God. Mama looks good. You know what? I'm thankful. I also recently had a chance to visit a whole bunch of other family in the States. It's the first time I had been back to the States since COVID. I hadn't seen my father in almost three years. And so we're hanging out, and uh, we were there, and I connected with a second cousin of mine, Cousin Aaron, who is the oldest living relative in our family. He's 97, and he turns 98 July 5th. And the man is as strong as an ox. And I'm not joking. Like, strong as, and sharp. Served in the military in World War II and Vietnam. Praise God. An amazing legacy. I'm talking, he was reciting things with such clarity and acuity. My brother, that's my brother on the, would be my left, you're right. We were stunned and fascinated how he still recalls these things. And, uh, but the harsh reality of this life is that someday both of these beloved family members will enter the next life. The harsh reality is that someday so will I. And someday, so will you and every person you love. In Luke 16, Jesus finishes up for him what must have been an enormous or long day of teaching and trying to connect. Because this here, Luke 15 and 16, is, equates in the same amount of volume and length that we see in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. That, the Sermon on the Mount, was the infancy, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, but what's happening in Luke 15, 16, and 17 have forever, or Luke 15 and 16 have forever changed the way I see certain things, and I've been teaching a series on it, and this is what I couldn't get away from. What Jesus does is, as you know, he's teaching this, and literally he is just a couple of weeks away from his death. Isn't it interesting? That's where we are right now, chronologically speaking. We are just a couple of weeks away from what people refer to as a Good Friday. Jesus is sitting down with sinners and tax collectors, the people that nobody wants to hang with. This is why we say no perfect people allowed at Extraordinary Church, because everybody is welcome here. You're welcome with your issues. You're welcome with your dysfunction. You're welcome with your brokenness. You're welcome with your confusion. You're welcome with, I don't have it all together. You belong here. May we never get it confused that we are not here for those who claim to have it all together, though you're welcome too. But I want to be around some people who understand if it had not been for the grace of God and the mercy of God, I would not be here right now, lest it be his grace. That's the only reason why I'm standing. And the only reason why I'm standing is because I have fallen down, but a righteous man, a righteous man gets back up again. So I want you to know there's nobody perfect here, but you can get back up again by the grace of God. Somebody give him praise for his grace. So Jesus is, he's connecting with people that will acknowledge they need him. 
Now you have to understand how important this is because a rabbi would never sit with a tax collector. Never would he sit with sinners. It was demeaning to his role, so others thought. So when the religious folks show up, they say, you know what, hey. I was like, what is that echo? Praise God. It's my phone. <laughs> Praise God. I'm watching the live stream. Got to check it. Praise God. Make sure everything's going. I wasn't, clearly, I wasn't literally watching it, but had it planned. I was like, what is that echo? Maybe y'all could hear it. So he, he's letting them know, hey, here's why I'm, I'm, I'm here. And the religious world is furious. They're so furious that they call him out. Now, you also have to keep in mind that this is astounding to those that are unchurched, those that know they got issues. Because they never thought a holy man would come and sit with them. <laughs> this is why. We, I know we sang about running to the Father, but the Father runs to us. Praise God. So, and if they could just, if you could just get the scene right here. At this point, we're just weeks away from his crucifixion. This means that the religious world has concluded emphatically that the only thing that will satisfy them is his extinction. They are done with Jesus. And so now it's not only just boiling, it's manifested itself. They're coming after them like, who do you think you are and why are you sitting with these people? You're making our role seem meaningless. So he turns and speaks to the Pharisees. The first thing he does is he talks about uh, a shepherd, a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, but one was gone. I'm thankful. He says, you know what? And then the shepherd goes after the one and he abandons the, not abandons, but leaves the other 99 to bring the one back. And they are so offended by this because a shepherd was considered like the lowest of low occupations. So they're like, who does this, why is he offending us like this? Then he explains, hey, let me talk about a woman who had an important piece of her dowry missing. And they, these, rabbi, these rabbis and Pharisees are about to have a conniption fit. Because they're like, are you bringing up a woman back then? In ancient times, a woman was considered a third-class citizen and, frankly, only viewed as an incubator. And they said... You're, you're bringing up a woman who lost something and found it and notice, He tells these stories. And in both instances, there's parties that are thrown when everybody finds what they're looking for. Then he gets to the third one. You can read all this in Luke 15. So he's telling a story to try to connect with these Pharisees and this religious world. And he's kind of kind of rebuking them at the same time to try to level the playing field. And I can't imagine what his disciples are thinking or those that he's eating with. They're probably just dumbfounded. Then he talks about a dad. And I talked about this on a Wednesday night. There was a certain father who had two sons. We miss this because oftentimes what we say is we make this the story of the prodigal son. When the reality of it is it's the story of the prodigal father. Just read it. Read it right there because the subject will tell you, the sentence will tell you, the subject is the certain father, not the two sons. And prodigal means reckless, extravagant. And so the father is reckless and extravagant with his love toward us. Because there was a son who said, hey, give me my inheritance. He said, he's wishing his father was dead. He said, I want you dead. I want you out of my life. I can't stand you. They didn't have, it wasn't like the dad just stroked him a check and said, well, here's $500,000, go cash it and be done. No, the inheritance were goats and jewelry and land. And what he had to do, the son, is to go around to the community and sell or liquidate his inheritance. So now the community, you can study this. This is why culture is so important, and I'm going somewhere. But when you look at it from a first Jewish first century perspective, this stuff is offensive. So the community is livid that this son would wish his father dead 
and disrespect him this way. So much so that they are ready for blood. That's why he leaves to a faraway land. Because he has nowhere else to go and be safe. He finds himself doing things that nobody would ever do. And in Jewish culture and in the Middle East, when they don't want you around, they don't tell you. Like Americans, Canadians are real nice. Pastor Barry says some of them pray. You're right. You are right. You know, I was driving recently. Now, see, when I was in the States, praise God, people. Now, I wasn't driving. My dad was driving. But people yelling at us and honking and showing. But I did have somebody not too long ago, um, like, who was Canadian. Who, I guess they were Canadian. Remember, well, license plate said they were. Man, they, they flicked me off and gave me the bird. And I was like, what is going on? These ain't Canadians. Praise God. So, you know, they, they, they won't tell you. Like, Americans will tell you. We'll let you know we don't like you. And if you don't like it, oh, well. But, now, I didn't notice I didn't, born again, Americans. Praise God. Let me tell you, some of y'all ready to become Americans. No, no, no. Not, but we're not of this world, praise God. We're from a different kingdom. Praise God. Just think about that, praise God. When somebody cuts you off, you just, thank you, Jesus. I'm still here. You ain't got to do nothing else. Matter of fact, if you just begin to worship the Lord, they might just, they might just carry on. So, in the Middle East, though, they wouldn't do that. They would offer you a job that you would never, ever consider. So, when they didn't want this guy around, who we call the prodigal son, they said, I know how to get rid of him. Let him take care of the pigs. Nobody will do that, especially not a Jew, because they consider that animal to be unclean. But what does he find himself doing? Doing the very thing that he knows is beneath him. And so he says, oh, my God. He said, he finally comes to his senses and he says, well, maybe I can figure this thing out if I, he's negotiating and talking with us. So maybe if I can get back to my father's house, I'll just be a servant and I can work and I can earn this. And how many of us try to work and earn things? Let me just help you out right now. You can't earn your way into this. Somebody ought to. You can't earn your way into this. There's not a, you, you can't work enough, you can't do enough good deeds. I'm trying to tell you it's only the grace of God, it's the mercy of God. And this is why some of us can't receive it because we're so used to a performance type driven nature. But I want you to know that God still loves you on your bad day and your good day. I want you to know that he loves you and is wild about you and wants to bless you and keep you when you mess up or when you do things intentionally. I want you to know he loves you just as much when you got done with the three day fast and you have served him with everything that you have or when you have been prayerless for two weeks. I want you to know that he loves you no matter what and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less so he comes his son comes to his senses and he says maybe I'll earn this and I'll be a servant in my father's house and, and as he's making his way back the community sees he's coming and it's trouble trouble. They about to take him out because they're like, oh my word, the arrogance that he already wished his father did, yet he has the unmitigated gall to show up in our community. And at a distance, the father sees his son. And what he does is something that no nobleman would ever do. Lift up his robe and begin to reveal portions of his legs. To go cover his son. <laughs> and this is amazing because he covers him and he, he says, hey, you know what? We're going to throw a party. My son is back. My son, which was dead, is now alive. He, he covers him with his best robe. And here's what's cool is, notice, he, is, he has come to his son. The people, the community are ready to like stone him. And he tells them, go back and get my best robe. So that not only the son will have a right understanding of who he is, but so that the community or the world will know. Oh, <laughs> oh, I'm preaching myself happy. 
so that the world will know who he is. See, you need to know that what God wants to do in your life, you need to hear me. What God wants to do in your life, not only he wants to solidify your understanding of who you are in him, but he also wants to solidify it for the world. You are not a mistake. You are not an afterthought. You are an overcomer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. You are a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You are royalty. You are joint heirs with him. You need to know who you are in him. Stop walking around with your head down low. Stop beating yourself up. You belong to the king. He wants to give you his best. His best. His best. So then he says, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put a ring on your finger, give you the ability to purchase things. And we're going to put sandals on your feet because slaves don't wear shoes. But you're covered. So Jesus tells these stories, trying to get through to the Pharisees. Then he kind of whoop, pivots, speaks to his disciples. And he talks about a, a, a manager who managed a field or assets, if you will. And he's kind of crooked and doing some things and word gets out. And so the owner shows up and is like, man, what are you doing? You're, you're doing things wrong. And uh, matter of fact, he just said, what, you know, he's like, give me an account for what's happening. He didn't even call him out. As a matter of fact, if you read it in Luke 16, and the, the, the owner is being gracious and merciful. And so this guy decides before he has to go produce the books to show the wrongs that he has done, he begins to just cut deals. He's wheeling and dealing. We got people that know how to wheel and deal. Like, you know, when you go to the, when you like, you, you intentionally go to the flea market and if something is $5, you're going to pay two fifty dollars for it. Okay, I'm just, okay, praise God. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that negotiator, but like some of y'all, like I ain't paying full price for Some of y'all be at the grocery store, you know it's say too. And you, and you act like the milk, you act like that's the MSRP, the suggested retail sticker price. No, the milk costs $4.99. So he was doing some of that. And here he is trying to negotiate, and he's negotiating, and he's got, he understands he's got limited time with his resources. That's what we need to understand. We have limited time with what God has given us. And so he gets back and he makes his right. He shows up and you know what? The owner says, you're a shrewd scoundrel. But I like what you did. And he's like, I could. The owner's like, you know, he's reducing debts and nobody does that. No landlord reduces the rents or cuts the debts as exponentially as he did, this manager did. But when word got out, people are celebrating. The owner was like, well, I'm not going to look bad. I'm a generous guy. I'm a generous guy, so people are celebrating. And so he begins to speak to his disciples about uh, helping them understand this process of engagement and what belongs to God and how he's given us a finite time. And then he gets to this part. Now, you have to understand, this is kind of like good news, good news, good news, good news. Let me tell you, it's getting about to get real is what he says. So Jesus is here. And I want you to let this settle in for a moment. Because what he's trying to get them to understand is life on earth is different from life in eternity. He tells the story of two men. There was a certain rich man who had made it. He, feared, he fared sumptuously every day outside of his gate. There was a poor beggar named Lazarus, malnourished, poorly clothed, friends of only dogs who came by to lick his sores. In Luke 16, he tells the story of this rich man. And, and this is a historical account of what took place because the Lord is using his name. In all other previous instances in Luke 15 and 16, there were no names utilized. This is not just a story. We know the rich man, Jesus tells us, the story's primarily about him because he starts off by saying, looking at the Pharisees, looking at the tax collectors, and looking at his disciples, there was a certain rich man. And after he says this, he tells us how lavishly this guy lived, how rich he was, how he dressed, and how he ate, and how he fared. Every single day. 
how the Pharisees see this is interesting. The moral judges, the Pharisees, they would have seen it differently. They would have thought the man who prospered on this earth was righteous and a direct heir to paradise. After all, had the rich man not possessed all the belongings that perhaps we declare in Deuteronomy 28? And Lazarus, the poor creature, surely his misery was the result of sin is what the Pharisees are thinking. Their thinking hadn't changed since the oldest book in the Bible since Job was afflicted. Yet their thinking was wrong. The rich man was having heaven on earth. His hell was in the future. Lazarus, however, had already had his taste of troubles. And somewhere in the mix, he placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. His name, Lazarus, means the one God helps. See, like the Pharisees, we too can be wrong in our judgments. We arrive at snap judgments. We rush to conclusions. We follow the well-worn paths of prejudice and personal bias to an already well-formed opinion just based upon somebody and how they look. We appease our consciences with belligerent contrary notions, with hearts as cold as a rich man's, with minds as locked as the Pharisees. As Jesus said, we really do err. You can almost imagine the funeral of these two men. One was all pomp and circumstance. The rich man was paraded through the streets. Money was distributed to hire professional mourners. His earthly remains were carried to a magnificent mausoleum as rich, mournful music played softly in the background. The crowds turned out in volumes. The people mourned such a loss of such a notable talisman. Lazarus's funeral wouldn't have been much at all. Might have taken a day or two for someone to notice he even died. Then some public servant, a trashman or sanitation worker, probably dragged the body of Lazarus to the potter's field where it is unceremoniously dumped. Unlike the rich man in the last two stories we read about, this rich man is not the hero. Nor is he a nice guy. He's calloused. Old guy who thinks about very few people beside himself. Lazarus, though, is absolutely, completely dependent upon God, and he knows it. He's in bad physical condition. There's sores all over his legs, so he's probably got some sort of disease. Day after day, Lazarus is left at the rich guy's front gate. And day after day, he is ignored and followed to suffer with so much as a prayer or a crumb of bread. In the story, Jesus says Lazarus was longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Look at verse 21. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell. From the rich man's table. Now, what kind of table is this? I know, I know this is tough to hear, but you all just stick with me for just a moment. When you hear those words, we probably are thinking of a table in our Western civilization. We're thinking of something that's formed and fashioned out of mahogany or perhaps cherry wood, setting off, off the ground, maybe with a throw rug underneath it, surrounded by modern furniture and artwork, that type of table. But remember, Jesus is dealing with first century Palestinians. So the image in their mind and the image in his mind is far different from what we would expect in 21st century. When Jesus said these words, everyone in the audience immediately had a picture of a banquet with guests, servants, and onlookers watching and waiting for the after-dinner entertainment. One traveler who toured that area of the world before it became so commercialized wrote this description of how evening banquets at rich guys' houses went. And I quote H.B. Tristam, entertainment is a public affair. The gateway of the court and the door stand open. A long, low table, or more often merely the great and wood dishes, are placed along the center of the room and low couches on either side on which the guest placed in order of their rank recline leaning on their left elbow with their feet turned away from the table. Servants stand behind the couches. Behind the servants, the loungers of the village crowd in, nor are they thought obtrusive in doing so. So do you get that? 
everybody that's invited is close to the table, okay? Sitting at the table. This is how Middle Eastern feasts went for centuries. The eaters reclined slightly raised table, on by servants and watchers. Uh, and this is kind of how you had these three tiers, if you will. Now, check this out. Afterwards, the onlookers would be able to watch the entertainment. Lazarus, sores, and all is one of those loungers or onlookers in the background. He's called by Jesus a beggar, which was a job back then. Whatever the case, Lazarus is dying and he's being carried to heaven. Now, this is interesting. I want you to note this because just don't forget that they're seated in order of importance. Okay? They're seated in order of importance. Now, watch this. Lazarus dies, and he's being carried to heaven. The rich man dies, and he's going to hell. Let me just tell you, life in hell is different than life in heaven. See, the third character in this story, Jesus. The third story, the third character in this story is introduced, and it's Abraham. Abraham is everything to the Jewish people. He is the spiritual father of this nation. The angels deposit poor Lazarus at Abraham's side, literally right up next to his chest, in his bosom, the Bible tells us. This is really cool because what Jesus is describing is another banquet. Only this banquet, Lazarus has been invited to. <laughs> At this banquet, Lazarus is not an onlooker. Lazarus, not his, he's not in the background. Lazarus is not a servant. He's not waiting tables. He's an honored guest seated right next to Abraham himself. Whew. See, Jesus says the angels carried him to Abraham's side. What everyone pictured was Abraham reclining at the table. <laughs> He's the founder of Judaism, the spiritual leader of his clan. And people around the table are reclining next to him. It's in order of rank. And who is reclining next to Abraham? Lazarus. At the head of the table. In other words, there's nobody more important at that table than Lazarus. And if Lazarus is right next to Abraham, what does it say about the host and how the host feels about him? He's about as special as he gets. So Jesus is telling the story of this guy who in life rarely ever got treated well. God. Didn't get breaks, didn't get opportunities, didn't get Honors of recognition, didn't get trophies. All throughout his life, he got gutters, he got sores, he got front gates to lean on. But in the next life, he's seated right next to Abraham. See, that's the picture of Lazarus' afterlife. He's, the, he's at the great banquet of Father Abraham, a great place of rest, of fellowship, and of bliss. But the rich man's fate in hell was very different. It was something like a place of solitary confinement. There were others there, but it isn't mentioned that he was even aware of them. I want to say that again. There were others there, but there's no mention that he's even aware of them. I'm going to say it one more time. There are others there, but there was no mention that he's even aware of them. Hell was some sort of one-way window. The wicked could look into the portals of glory, but the righteous dead could not see what was happening in hell. In contrast to that, where does the rich man wind up? Hell. His callous heart, his self-sufficiency, and unresponsiveness to God got him delivered to the place of his own making and choosing. All of his life, he lived a life as if he didn't need God. All of his life, he kept God at arm's length. In effect, he said, I don't want you in my life, God. I want to be my own Lord. I want to be my own God. I'll run my own show. So in the afterlife, God grants him his wish. Just like he does with all those who choose to ignore him. 
fend him off or push away his overtures of love, which is what he explained in Luke 15, how much he loves people and the lengths to which he'll go. He literally robed himself in flesh for you and I. Hell exists so that people who choose to exclude God from their lives can have what they wish for, for all eternity. So the rich man, you know what he does? He makes a 911 call to Father Abraham. Oh, how that must have pierced the hearts of the Pharisees who heard that day. They felt that all they had to be or was to be born of the seed of Abraham and that they had inherited bliss. But no, you're born into this world, but you're not born into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Unless a man be born of water and of spirit, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. I need you to know the church is not an organization. The church is a spiritual thing. Therefore, you have to be born in the spirit to be a part of the church. So, verse 23, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. See, the rich man never really thought of the consequences of his choice. He never consciously verbalized to himself that pushing God away throughout his life on earth would mean he'd spend eternity without him. He's surprised when he finds himself in this terrible place. And according to Jesus, he's in torment and in agony. And within seconds of entering this destination, this godless destination, with agony, he begins to dialogue with Abraham, talking about what's going wrong. He sees Abraham in heaven, and so he shouts, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. My question is, why doesn't he talk directly to Lazarus? Why doesn't he just say, Lazarus, my friend, could you help me out? You know why? Because he still sees himself superior to Lazarus. He still thinks there's some social class that gives him distinction and honor, that he sees Lazarus as a servant and refuses to recognize he's an honored guest. He's so full of himself, he doesn't even think of Lazarus as being an esteemed guest. He sees him as somebody that can run errands. This is what happens when we're so consumed with ourselves. This is what happens when we think position is everything. This is what happens when we're too good to do certain things. This is what happens when you think too much of yourself and others less. Here he is in the midst of his agony. Here you can be in the midst of your agony and you be thinking more of yourself than others. So he says, send them, Father Abraham. And what's interesting is this. He doesn't even acknowledge Lazarus as somebody who has feelings or hopes or dreams or purpose. <laughs> he sees him as an errand boy. And why does he address Abraham as father? Surely, maybe a sign of respect. But I think he thought, I'm blessed. I lived a blessed life, a good life. I am your seed. I'm appealing to you as a father. In other words, it's me. Don't you know who I am? I'm your descendant. Have mercy on me. I, I shouldn't be down here. Maybe you can fix this. Maybe you can make this right. And Abraham says, I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. There's a huge immovable chasm between where I am and where you are. In other words, you've made some decisions on earth. And now those decisions are final. I know this is long. I've got two more pages and I'm done. 
but I want to give you seven facts about a place called hell. Hell is a real place. It follows a person's death, and it is a certainty. Two, hell isn't seen by those who are alive. I hear people talk about cocaine addictions and being hell to cope with or having a boss from hell, but no one alive has truly seen hell. The third thing is hell is required by just God. Men cry for justice and fairness. On that day, the just judge of the universe will make all things right. And you're probably thinking, preacher, how could a good God send people or anyone to hell? God is just and he can't overlook evil. It was God's love that caused him to put on flesh, die on Calvary and raise from the dead on the third day so that you and I could escape hell. To reject his plan, to reject his love is saying, I don't want you a part of my life now or in the afterlife. God didn't send anybody to hell. We send ourselves. The fourth thing is hell. I'm sorry. Hell is a place of tremendous torment. It's the torment of physical pain. It's the fire that's not quenched. No way for your loved ones to pay you out. Once a person is in hell, you're in there to stay. He or she can't leave. Hell is an irreversible fate. There's no way of escape. There's no exit, no bridge over the fixed gulf. The sixth thing I want to tell you is many will go to hell thinking they're on their way to heaven. Does everyone on the broad way to hell know they're on the road to hell? Of course not. They proclaim that they are marching to Zion, except they have found an easier way. It's not narrow. It's not confining. They do as they please. And the Bible says, there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end is death. A self-righteous person never dreams of going to hell. A con man never dreams of going to hell. He always thinks there is some loophole, that he's beyond that. People always think they're the exception. It's what we think. And the seventh thing is, hell is where people go who haven't called on heaven. The rich man prayed, but he prayed too late. The rich man prayed, but when he began to pray too late, heaven said no, no, no. See, this starts the rich man's thinking. It's at this point the climax of the story begins to really take shape. Y'all remember, y'all know I love Christmas. It's the most wonderful time of the year. And we, I mean, like, I could do Christmas. You know what? There's a place called Christmas, Indiana. I preached in there, praise God. And they have Santa Claus. You know, I just want to go. I could, we, could, we, could, we need to start an extraordinary church there, one of the campuses, praise God. So whenever we want to visit, there'll be Christmas and day around, praise God. And I can listen, you know, Donnie, shake a hand, shake a hand. Anyway. So, the Grinch, when he begins to see it, you remember when it says his heart begins to grow. It's bigger. This is what happens to this rich man. All of a sudden, his heart, which was small and only consumed about self, begins to get bigger and think about others. He begins to think about those that are still alive and still have hope. He says, Abraham, if you won't come and give me something to drink and, you know, if Lazarus, tell him what to do. He was like, God, please go send somebody to my family. Hear me, hear me, hear me, me. I want you to come. I feel the Holy Ghost. You know what I am just seeing now, even in this? And, you know, guys, y'all, y'all, I need you to play sensitively. I want to make sure Mia, matter of fact, I don't we even want any other band member to play until I give you the cue. But, you know, what's interesting is 
He's not concerned about his colleagues at that point. He's not concerned about his neighbors. He's concerned about his family. Above all else, they must be saved. Go, go and see them. Go and tell them. Go and tell them what's happening. And you know the response astounded him. Well, they've got Moses and the prophets. They've got the law. They've got, they've got the word of God at that point in time. They've got the Old Testament, if you will. This is all that they need. what I realized and I had never seen this before and I said God help me this self-contained self-sufficient dude who wanted nobody else's help who was it didn't want God at all all of a sudden becomes an evangelist go go get my brothers tell them Tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him. See, I, what, what I want you to know is eternal life must be found in this life. Eternal life can't be found when it's too late. Eternal life can't be found after your last breath. Eternal life must be found now. I know, I know you think, and no, I don't believe you think this, but for some you might think, well, do they want to be the largest church because of money? Absolutely not. We want to be the largest church because we are on a mission to depopulate hell and populate heaven. I speak the truth to you in love, and I don't beat you up. The Lord hasn't released me to preach anything other than faith and love. Why? Because he loves you so much. We don't, he doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell and people talk about hell the most difficult thing about hell Alex is the presence of God will not be there you can forget the fire the weeping, the gnashing of teeth the bottomless pit there'll be no presence of God for there'll be no hope there'll be no possibilities there'll be no grace and mercy. See? Whew, what Christ face in these stories said when he looked at these Pharisees. Show them verse 31. He looked at the Pharisees. Think about this as he's closing this. He said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will be there. Oh, God. Neither will they be persuaded. The one rise from the dead. He was telling them what he's fixing to do. He's telling them what he's fixing to do. And he's like, you're not going to be persuaded. You're going to miss it. But you know what? You know what I love about Extraordinary Church? No Pharisees. It's no Pharisees. I feel like I can hear myself now. Wow. You know what? The Holy Ghost is calling us today. No, they didn't believe you, Jesus, even when you rose from the dead. But today, I believe there's a group of people that will hear this preacher. I want to tell you about a phone call that I received in the middle of the night from a young lady named Diane. She called me. She said, you know what? Hey, I think I, I, I see it now. It's like 1030 at night. She said, I need God. She said, I, I, I need God. And I, I don't know what to do, but I, I wonder if I could maybe have what you have. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Because, see, it's the will of God that everybody receive his spirit. 
It's the will of God that everybody receive remission of sins. In other words, all of your sins being washed away as you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You know what? I even feel there's some people who are away from God, but you know this precious truth. But there's, you've been hurt by church. I'm going to teach a series on it about church hurt. But right now, the Holy Ghost is calling you. The love of God is calling you and drawing you. Even those that are watching online right now. You know what I want us to do? I have a few more things I want to say, and I'm going to be done. I don't normally preach this long, and I know we've had a children's dedication. It was a beautiful moment. But I want everybody to lift their hands right now. Praise God. Come on and just... Begin to allow the love of God to, to reach you. Because that's really what this is. It's the love of God. It's the love of God reaching. It's the love of God reaching. It's the mercy of God. <laughs> Come on, that's it. Come on, that's it. He's running to you. He's running to you. He's running to you. He's running to you to be with you, to save you, to heal you, to deliver you. So here's what, here's what she does. She calls me in the middle of the night. And she says, I need God. And I said, guess what? I do too. I need him every waking moment I'm alive. This is not a one-time thing. This is not. This morning I got up and I was praying, God, if you don't do it, it won't get done. You don't keep me. I'm only breathing because you have put breath in my body. How can I hold it for myself? I'll give you my thank you. I'll give you my praise. I'll give you my devotion. I'll give you my life. I'll give you my purpose. I'll give you my family. It all belongs to you. So she said, can we come? Can I come pray? I said, come on. Come on and pray. We prayed. We repented of our sins. And repentance is just saying, hey, you know what, God? I've tried my way, but I'm going to try yours. It's not about being perfect. It's not about never making a mistake again. It's not about even willfully sinning again. Now, am I condoning sin? No, clearly. Jesus said, go and sin no more. But I can assure you, as the guy that's preaching right now, I have made a bajillion mistakes. Is that a number? But you know what? It's grace and mercy. So I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about having it all figured out. I'm talking about what we say, Sarah, is having a yes in our spirit. Yes, God. God, if you gave me a choice, I'd choose you every time and not what the world has to offer. So we repent. And she began to pray, began to seek God to receive his spirit. Because the church is a spiritual thing. It's his, and God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. So he begins to, she begins to worship God, and we feel the presence of God. She didn't receive the Holy Ghost that night, but later she called me the next night. That was Tuesday night. She called me Wednesday night. It was like, I want to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I called my pastor. I said, man, I've got a friend who wants to be baptized. And he said, great. Can we wait till tomorrow? I said, No. He said, great, we won't. He said, we didn't, we didn't even have a building. We didn't have a church. See, like, we got a baptistry right here, praise God. So, like, if you want to get baptized right now. Right now, you can do it. So, you know what? We called this other church. We drove across town. Pastor, this, that church, that pastor said, I'll be there. Let us in. She changed, got in the water, and we, he baptized her. I'll never forget. He said her name and baptized her in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And I'm looking, and I was like, wow, the glory of the Lord filled that room. And when she came up out of the water, her hands were lifted. She never spoke another word in English. God filled her with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. She began to speak in another language as God's Spirit gave her the ability to speak what am I telling you is, she made a 911 call. Today, there's somebody who needs to make a 911 call. 
I want to thank all of our online watchers, viewers. Come see us next Sunday. You don't want to miss it. We're going to have Palm Sunday. It's going to be an amazing time as we celebrate our triumphant king. And then Easter, it's going down. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Join us next week for another message of hope and life in Jesus. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address to all of your friends, extraordinarychurch.ca. We are a young church plant with a lot of people living an extraordinary life in Jesus. If you're looking for a way to become better connected to what God is doing, email us, info at extraordinarychurch.ca. We'd love to hear from you.